Part five of Chapter six of A Student's History of American Literature by William Simons. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Part five Poetry, South and North. Among the minor poets whose songs have found recognition and whose names deserve some record in the history of our literature, the following at least should be included. William W. Story, 1819-1895, to the friend of Hawthorne and Lowell, was born in Salem. He resided for the larger part of his life in Italy and attained considerable rank as a sculptor. He was a poet of more than ordinary gifts, and an author of several volumes, prose as well as verse, including the well-known Roba de Roma, or Walks and Talks About Rome, 1862. Thomas William Parsons, 1819-1892, born at Boston, is more widely known as a translator of Dante than as an original poet although his lines on a bust of Dante are greatly admired by scholars. Dr. Parsons, who was a dental surgeon, practiced his profession abroad, and it was during his residence in Italy that his interest in the Italian poet was aroused. His translation ranks with the best American renderings of the Commedia, although it is not complete. His version of The Inferno appeared in 1867 portions of the purgatorio and paradiso were published in eighteen ninety three christopher pierce cranch eighteen thirteen to eighteen ninety two an artist living in cambridge a member of the transcendental group published a translation of virgil's aeneid in eighteen seventy two the modest verse of alice and phoebe carey alice eighteen twenty to eighteen seventy one Phoebe, 1824-1871. Serious in sentiment, often religious, was widely read. The Carey sisters were natives of Ohio, but in 1852 removed to New York. Mrs. Julia Ward Howe, 1819-1910, a well-known lecturer and leader in various reform movements, has written several volumes of verse, but will be remembered chiefly as the author of a great war poem, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. Lucy Larcombe, 1826-1893, whose early songs, written while she was a worker in the mills at Lowell, attracted the notice of Whittier, and Mrs. Celia Leighton Thaxter, 1836-1894, daughter of the lighthouse keeper on the Isles of Shoals, were, like Mrs. Howe, typical New England women who found their inspiration in subjects and activities close at hand. The names of Mrs. Harriet Prescott Spofford, 1835-2, and Mrs. Louise Chandler Moulton, 1835-1908, should be included in this list of our minor poets of recognized worth. A larger distinction attends the literary career of Mrs. Helen Fiske Jackson, 1831-1885, to before her second marriage, Helen Hunt, whose signature, H.H., H., was familiar to the readers of a generation ago. 
Mrs. Jackson was born at Amherst, Massachusetts. Her poems, issued in 1870, placed her at the head of the women writers of verse in America. The last ten years of Mrs. Jackson's life were spent in Colorado and California. Her interest in the Indians and her intense sympathy with them in their wrongs led to the publication of her Century of Dishonor, 1881, a book which bore fruit in the official appointment of Mrs. Jackson as special examiner to the Mission Indians in California, and eventually in her striking novel, Ramona, 1884. A group of rather remarkable short stories by Sachs Holm, published in two series, 1873-1878, although unacknowledged, are usually attributed to Helen Hunt Jackson. The poems of Emily Dickinson, 1830-1886, are remarkable productions which have commanded recognition by our highest literary critics. Miss Dickinson was a townswoman of Helen Fiske, and her life was spent at Amherst, largely in seclusion. Only a few intimate friends were aware of her poetical gift, and her verses were not published until 1890, four years after her death. John Hay, 1838 to 1905, distinguished as a diplomat and statesman, was born in Indiana. He began the practice of law in Illinois in 1861 and became the private secretary of President Lincoln. In collaboration with John G. Nicolay, he afterward wrote the authoritative Abraham Lincoln, A History, 1886 to 1890. His literary fame, however, is based upon a slender volume of Pike County Ballads, 1871, which, strong in local color, portrayed the rough virtues of the Mississippi Valley in the early days. There is a finer quality of elegance and grace, with less originality, in the later verse of his Castilian Days, 1871, and Poems, 1890. A strong and successful novel, the Breadwinners, 1884, attributed to John Hay, was never publicly acknowledged by him. Edward Rowland Sill, 1841-1887, a native of New England, although compelled by ill health to seek a residence in California, exhibited a notable talent in his poetry which has rich gifts of spiritual insight and power. John Boyle O'Reilly, 1844-1890, an Irish patriot with a romantic history, a gifted orator, and an influential editor in Boston, was a lyric poet of more than ordinary talent. He was the author of many excellent songs and ballads. J. Maurice Thompson, 1844-1901, well known as a literary critic and as the author of several popular romances, also deserves recognition as a lyric poet. A disciple of Theocritus, he was an enthusiast for nature, a lover of outdoor life and sports. He revived the interest in archery and sang of birds and woods. Thompson was born in Indiana, but lived as a boy in Kentucky and Georgia. He served in the Confederate Army during the war, and at its close returned to his native state. 
since the death of poe the south has not been represented by any poet of equal rank yet it has been by no means without its representatives in verse of whom one or two may be said to have attained national prominence william g sims eighteen o six to eighteen seventy whose contributions to american fiction have been described was the author of several volumes of verse which enjoyed local popularity but which does not rise above mediocrity albert pike eighteen o nine to eighteen ninety one born in boston a settler in arkansas a soldier in the confederate army published in eighteen thirty one his ambitious hymns to the gods better known to-day is his charming ode to the mockingbird and best known of all his verse is the stirring war song dixie in this connection mention should be made of theodore o'hara eighteen twenty to eighteen sixty seven of kentucky who in eighteen forty seven wrote the bivouac of the dead this martial elegy upon which the reputation of its author rests commemorates the deaths of kentuckians who fell at the battle of buena vista another famous song of the south in wartime maryland my maryland was the composition of james ryder randall eighteen thirty nine to nineteen o eight a native of baltimore three southern poets belonging to the generation which followed poe have risen to more than minor rank these are henry temrod paul h hayne and sidney lanier there is a pathetic resemblance in the circumstances and experiences of all each suffered personally the distressing effects of the war which interrupted the literary achievement and shortened the life of each both timrod and lanier died under forty while hayne although surviving to the age of fifty-five was an invalid for many years before his death the poet timrod was born at charleston south carolina he studied at the university of georgia and began the reading of law he had already won recognition as a poet and had formed a lifelong friendship with young hayne who was also a native of charleston together the poet friends entered on their literary career and under the encouragement of william g sims they were associated in an editorial venture which proved short-lived timrod's poems which filled but a slender volume were published at boston in eighteen sixty his most elaborate composition being a vision of posy the statement of his poetical creed then came the war timrod's health was too delicate to permit of military service but he went upon the field as correspondent for a charleston paper but this experience proved too strenuous and in eighteen sixty four he became associate editor of the south carolinian at columbia the state capital when that city was destroyed at the entrance of sherman's army his home was burned and everything that he possessed was lost his poverty was so great that his family was on the verge of starvation the last three years of the poet's life were years of acute suffering a visit to the rustic home of his friend hayne failed to benefit him his health rapidly declined and he died at thirty-eight a complete edition of timrod's poems was edited by his brother poet in eighteen seventy eight 
much of timrod's verse is nature poetry serious in spirit like that of wordsworth elevated and musical his best-known poem the cotton ball is no less notable for its patriotic fervor than for its fine description of the snowy cotton fields of the south his highest achievement is seen in the beautiful ode at magnolia cemetery eighteen sixty seven which closes with these lines stoop angels hither from the skies there is no holier spot of ground than where defeated valor lies by morning beauty crowned hayne was reared in the cultured and wealthy charleston home of his uncle robert y hayne webster's great opponent in the united states senate previous to the war he had filled two or three editorial positions including the editorship of russell's magazine the publication promoted by the novelist william gilmore sims and since the publication of his early poems in eighteen fifty five had been regarded as the representative poet of the south haines served with the rank of colonel in the confederate army in the bombardment of charleston he lost all his possessions and found himself at the close of the war in the deepest poverty and a confirmed invalid he then went to the barren pinelands of georgia where he built for himself and his family a rude cottage on a piece of land known as copse hill this was the poet's home until his death he published a volume legends and lyrics in eighteen seventy two and the mountain of the lovers and other poems in eighteen seventy five a complete edition of his poems appeared in eighteen eighty two hayne was essentially a poet of romance and succeeded admirably in his longer narrative poems and his ballads yet he too wrote like a true nature lover of the pines and the mockingbirds and the warmth of the southland in spite of loneliness and poverty his poems contain none of the sadness or melancholy so characteristic of poe they were tender and cheerful to the last more successful than any other southern poet except poe in the impression of his genius on readers of verse sidney lanier is gradually coming to be recognized as entitled to a place with our chief american poets the story of his life is as pathetic as those just rehearsed for his life too was colored by the shadows of ill health and straitened circumstances which followed in the wake of war born in macon georgia february third eighteen forty two lanier had just completed his college course in oglethorpe when the war broke he flung himself into the struggle with the same ardor that sent timrod and hayne to the support of the southern cause sidney and his brother clifford two slender gray-eyed youths inseparable in their service of danger and hardship extracted all the romance to be derived from their experience in eighteen sixty three they were on scout duty along the james lanier wrote later with enthusiasm of this period in their army life we had a flute and a guitar good horses a beautiful country splendid residences inhabited by friends who loved us and plenty of hairbreadth escapes from the roving bands of federals cliff and i never ceased to talk of the beautiful women the serenades the moonlight dashes on the beach 
of fair burwell's bay and the spirited brushes of our little force with the enemy in eighteen sixty four the brothers were transferred to wilmington and placed as signal officers upon the blockade runners here sidney lanier was captured and for five months was confined in the federal prison at camp lookout it well nigh became his tomb with emaciated frame and shattered physique the young soldier finally went home like so many other youthful veterans south and north to fight for life in the coming years with lanier the struggle was for both life and livelihood he was twenty-three years old unsettled as to his future and under the gloom of those raven days of the desolated and demoralized south our hearths are gone out and our hearts are broken he sang plaintively yet he turned the plaint into a song of cheer and he still found the romance in eighteen sixty seven he was married to miss mary day of macon and the poems of his wooing time and of his wedded life are as graceful and tender as the lyrics lowell sang to maria white for five years lanier tried to follow the law and then in eighteen seventy three gave himself to art he went to baltimore alone except for his flute lanier's flute is as famous as lanier it is a part of his personality its mellowed notes had cheered the soldier and his comrades by campfire and in prison it had been softly played in many a surreptitious serenade and it was widely known for lanier was a remarkable musician and was called by many the finest flute player in america if not in the world lanier's musical genius must be taken in account by the student of his verse so far as he could trace his ancestry it disclosed this talent as a family possession in the restoration period there were five lanyards in england who were musicians in charles first time nicholas lanyard who was painted by van dyke wrote music for the masks of johnson and the lyrics of herrick the father of this nicholas was a musician in the household of queen elizabeth thus sidney lanier came naturally by his gift in baltimore his flute secured him a position in the peabody orchestra and furnished the means of living for several years theodore thomas is said to have been on the point of making the artist first flute player in his orchestra when lanier's health finally failed and he was compelled to give up the struggle but sidney lanier found also in baltimore the first opportunity to gratify what had been the ambition of the years since his college course the opportunity to study literature and the scientific principles of verse the unfulfilled dream of his youth had been a systematic course in the german universities this was not to be realized but in the richly equipped peabody library he found his university never was there a more assiduous student especially did he devote himself to the field of old english poetry soon there were invitations to lecture and in the city he came to have an established reputation as a fascinating lecturer on english literature in eighteen seventy five he first won recognition as a poet of more than ordinary power by the publication of corn in lippincott's magazine 
Four months later, his remarkable poem, The Symphony, appeared in the same magazine. His new friendship with Bayard Taylor produced the invitation to write the words for the Centennial Cantata. The first collection of his poems was published in 1877. In rapid succession, he wrote three wonderful poems, The Revenge of Hamish, How Love Looked for Hell, and The Marshes of Glen. In 1879, the poet was appointed to a lectureship in the Johns Hopkins University. The fruit of this professional connection we have in two volumes, neither of which is characterized by scientific precision or minutely accurate scholarship. Nevertheless, the science of English verse and the English novel are recognized as valuable contributions to the study of literature. The first of these volumes is an essay on the technical side of versification, embodying Lanier's theory of rhythm and tone color. It was his belief that the laws of verse are identical with those of music. A series of books for boys, The Boys King Arthur, The Boys Pressor, etc., were the by-products from his studies of the ancient chronicles put forth to enlarge the scanty income. During the last two years of the poet's life, the struggle for poetical achievement grew tragic. In November 1880, he wrote his friend, Paul Hamilton Hayne, for six months past, a ghastly fever has taken possession of me each day at about 12 m, and holding my head under the surface of indescribable distress for the next twenty hours, subsiding only enough each morning to let me get on my working harness, but never intermitting. I have myself been disposed to think it arose purely from the bitterness of having to spend my time in making academic lectures and boys' books, potboilers all, when a thousand songs are singing in my heart that will certainly kill me if I do not utter them soon. Three years earlier he had written bravely in the stirrup cup, Death thou art a cordial old and rare, look how compounded, with what care, time got his wrinkles reaping thee sweet herbs from all antiquity. David to thy distillage went, Keats and Gautama excellent, Omar Khayyam and Chaucer write, and Shakespeare for a king delight. Then, time, let not a drop be spilt, hand me the cup whene'er thou wilt. Tis thy rich stirrup cup to me, I'll drink it down right smilingly. And now, in his greatest poem, Sunrise, completed soon after the date of his letter to Hayne, he could write in the same jubilant strain, Manifold One, I must pass from thy face, I must pass from the face of the sun. Old want is awake and agog, every wrinkle a frown. The worker must pass to his work in the terrible town. But I fear not, nay, and I fear not the thing to be done. I am strong with the strength of my lord, the sun. How dark, how dark, so ever the race that must needs be run. I am lit with the sun. In 1881, Lanier was taken to the Pinelands in the mountains of North Carolina, and there, in the September following, he died. His grave is in Baltimore. 
a bronze bust of the poet is fittingly placed in one of the halls of the university where for so brief a term he taught in spite of the limitations set by fate upon lanier's poetical work its high quality is evident it is poetry that charms the ear with its rich melodies and stirs the spirit by its own spiritual power a ballad of trees and the master is a familiar example of this quality how broad might have been the scope of lanier's eventual achievement can only be inferred from the pathetically small amount actually produced he had a vivid imagination and a masterly command of expression his descriptive skill evidenced in the blithe song of the chattahoochee and the hymns of the marshes was very fine the revenge of hamish is an intensely dramatic narrative a deep moral purpose is easily felt in lyrics like tampa robins the stirrup cup and at sunset poems which quite escaped the didactic tone but it is in the longer compositions corn the symphony psalm of the west sunrise and the marshes of glen that the poet's genius is exhibited at his highest reach in lanier's scanty bequest of verse we recognize the beauty and perfection of consummate art but the true source of his distinction lies for most of his readers in the cheery optimism of his message in the splendid faith the hearty sympathy and unconquerable courage of his own brave and loving soul the strength of his appeal is itself an evidence of the truth expressed by the poet in the second line of the symphony the time needs heart tis tired of head in general read stedman's poets of america and refer to that critic's american anthology for selections from the poet cited lanier is represented at length in pages the chief american poets haines complete poems with life were published in eighteen eighty two a life of timrod was included in the edition of timrod's poems edited by haines an admirable life of sidney lanier has been written by edwin mims Houghton mifflin company consult also holliday's history of southern literature representative of a generation younger than that of our chief american poets yet closely associated with them in personal companionship and in the spirit of their work are the two distinguished writers aldrich and stedman they form an interesting link between the present and the past holding more than a minor rank as poets both are prominent among american men of letters both achieve distinction in other fields than that of verse thomas bailey aldrich was born in portsmouth new hampshire november eleventh eighteen thirty six on account of business connections in the south the family were for a time accustomed to spend the winter at new orleans but it is the new hampshire seaport town which figures as rivermouth the home of tom bailey in that most attractive romance of youth the story of a bad boy eighteen seventy his father's death in eighteen forty nine put an end to plans for a college education and in his seventeenth year young aldrich went to new york and entered the banking house of his uncle he soon began however contributing to the literary journals 
and made acquaintance with N. P. Willis, Bayard Taylor, Stoddard, and Stedman, the last named being only three years older than himself. The publication of his beautiful Ballad of Baby Bell, 1856, first brought popularity, although a volume of verse, The Bells, had appeared in the previous year, when its author was but nineteen. After three years of commercial life, Aldrich abandoned the counting-room for the editor's office, and for the next ten years was associated with one or other of the New York magazines, his principal engagement being upon Willis's home journal. In 1865, he removed to Boston and took editorial charge of the publication every Saturday. In 1881, he succeeded Mr. Howells as editor of the Atlantic Monthly, retaining this position until 1890. Meanwhile, Aldrich's poems had been appearing in successive volumes. Cloth of Gold, 1874, filled with the rich color of Oriental fantasy. Flower and Thorn, 1876, Friar Jerome's Beautiful Book, 1881. In the long narrative poem, Wyndham Towers, 1889, the poet's work does not appear to such advantage as in the dainty lyrics of sentiment and romance which were the fruit of earlier years. No American poet has written with a more delicate or graceful touch. His technique is faultless in such brilliant pieces as When the Sultan Goes to Ispahan, The Lunch, Nocturne, Identity, and Baby Bell the tender pathos of which still retains its grasp on the emotions of its readers. Aldrich was his own severest critic, and his lines were frequently revised. Nothing short of perfection satisfied his keen sense of artistic expression. It is his own ideal that is embodied in this splendid sonnet. Enamored architect of airy rhyme, build as thou wilt, heed not what each man says, Good souls, but innocent of dreamers' ways, will come, and marvel why thou wastest time. Others, beholding how thy turrets climb, twixt theirs and heaven, will hate thee all their days. But most beware of those who come to praise, O wondersmith, O worker in sublime and heaven-sent dreams, let art be all in all. Build as thou wilt unspoiled by praise or blame build as thou wilt and as thy light is given then if at last the airy structure fall dissolve and vanish take thyself no shame they fail and they alone who have not striven the sisters tragedy eighteen ninety one and unguarded gates eighteen ninety five were the titles of the volumes which contained his later verse like his poems, Aldrich's prose works are characterized by the qualities of vivacity, brilliance, and delicate workmanship. Nothing pleases him better than to surprise his reader by some unexpected turn. This is the case in his first successful story, in some respects his best, Marjorie Daw, 1873, and in some of his later tales. The novels Prudence Palfrey, 1874, and The Queen of Sheba, 1877, were followed, in 1880, by an admirable detective story, 
the Stillwater Tragedy. It is, however, in the field of the short story that we most clearly recognize Aldrich's power as a writer of fiction, a field for which his art was exceedingly apt. Mercedes, a drama, 1883, and Judith of Bethulia, prepared for the stage in 1905, have not proved dramatically successful. It is upon the best of his short stories and his earlier lyrics, with their exquisite technique, that Aldrich's literary fame must rest. Edmund Clarence Stedman was born at Hartford, Connecticut, October 8, 1833. His mother, Elizabeth Dodge Stedman, was a writer of verse, published several volumes of poems, and through a long residence in Italy was an intimate friend of the Brownings. During his undergraduate course at Yale, young Stedman received a first prize for a poem on Westminster Abbey. In 1855, he entered the journalistic profession in New York and was one of the many talented men who became, at various times, protégés of Horace Greeley upon the staff of the Tribune. It was at this period that Stedman was thrown into intimate association with Stoddard, Taylor, and Aldrich. The first literary success came with the publication of The Diamond Wedding, a satirical poem inspired by a real incident in fashionable New York society. His poems, lyric and idyllic, were published in 1860, and in that year the poet went to the front as a war correspondent for the world. At the close of the war, Stedman became a banker and remained a member of the stock exchange until 1890. While thus engaged in active business, he nevertheless found leisure to practice the art of letters to good purpose. Some of his poems, like Kearney at Seven Pines, How Old Brown Took Harper's Ferry, Wanted a Man, and Pan in Wall Street, hold a high place in American literature. Yet Stedman is in no sense a popular poet, and not many of his compositions appeal to the public taste. He was not subjective, nor is there much intensity or passion in his verse. His themes were the immediate suggestions of the hour. Stedman ranks as our ablest critic of poetic literature. He lectured upon poetry at Johns Hopkins University in 1892, and afterward repeated these lectures at other institutions. It was at this time that he formulated his suggestive definition of poetry as rhythmical, imaginative language, expressing the invention, taste, thought, passion, and insight of the human soul. His critical volumes are The Victorian Poets, 1875, Poets of America, 1885, and The Nature and Elements of Poetry, 1892. These works are almost indispensable to the literary student. Mr. Stedman published a Victorian anthology in 1895 and an American anthology in 1900. In collaboration with G. E. Woodbury, he edited the works of Edgar Allan Poe in 1895 and with Ellen M. Hutchinson completed the monumental Library of American Literature, 11 volumes, in 1889. At the funeral of his brother poet, Aldrich, in March 1907, Stedman was a conspicuous figure. 
feeble and tottering with the weakness of advancing age yet death came upon him suddenly as he sat among his books at work january eighteenth nineteen o eight such a death as he had craved in more beneficia give me to die unwitting of the day and stricken in life's brave heat with senses clear and thus the last representative of the older generation of american poets had departed end of part five of chapter six end of chapter six